Hello, and welcome to the first in a new series of Political Capital podcasts featuring both Lanson's political consultants and opinions polling experts. Lanson's, as you may know, is an award-winning strategic reputation management consultancy, which blends expertise across consumer, financial, policy, employee, and media engagement to help build and protect reputations. Opinion is one of the country's leading pollsters, the most accurate polling agency in the 2019 general election. The award-winning strategic insight organisation also accurately predicted the results of the 2016 EU referendum and the last two London mayoral elections. In this running series, we will be exploring the undercurrents in British politics, looking not only at the headline-grabbing stories in the past fortnight, but also the pressures and realities which drive our decision-makers to act as we do. I'm James Dowling, a former Tory special advisor, a former Treasury official, and Lanson's lead political consultant. And I'm Adam Drummond. I'm the head of political polling at Opinium. And we're starting off with an episode on Britain's favourite politician for the moment, uh, Rishi Sunak, his recent performances, his politics, and of course, his polling. So, uh, Rishi Sunak yesterday gave a kind of uh, gave a speech at the kind of weird, technologically deficient event that this year passes for Tory conference. And uh, I mean, if you were one of the activists that could actually uh, access the uh, the conference, then uh, I think you would have probably taken broadly two messages out of it. Uh, and the first was this crisis that we're now in reaches what what started as a health crisis now reaches deep into our economy and society. Uh, and while it lasts uh, through, through its duration, the government and, and Rishi Sunak in particular, and the use of that pronoun was interesting, uh, would be there to support as many jobs and businesses through through, through this as as as, uh, as it as, as he could. Uh, so that that was the first. And then secondly, when this is over, they'll need to balance the books again. Adam, uh, what what were your what were your takeaways from the kind of headline takeaways from from from, from the speech? So I thought the, the the key line is about halfway through where he says, um, "Was it? I've always said that I couldn't protect every job or every business. No chance that it could." Um, so he's he's very much trying to signal that the the measures that he's taken, which have been extremely popular and extremely well received, especially compared to the rest of the government's handling of the pandemic, um, they are you know, emergency measures. They can't last forever. So there's there's an extent of trying to soften people up for for that the fact that these measures are going to have to end at some point um but also possibly sort of signaling to more um fiscally minded conservatives that yeah we 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 have not suddenly become um Jeremy Corbyn's party you know we we are not suddenly the big spending party so he he did seem at pains to point out that like no no this is yeah, you know, pe- people who joined or supported the Tories because they believe in you know balanced budgets and so on and low taxes and low spending, um, this is still the party for you, um, and that this is an exceptional period. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought that was really interesting, and I thought, uh, and obviously it's not the first time he's done this. The winter economic uh, statement uh, two weeks ago, he was soft pedalling the same, essentially the same message, particularly in his press conference afterwards, but. But this was more blatant, and it was more public, and it's noticeable that the media response has been has been clearer afterwards. And I, I, I did think that was very interesting. I and mean, I also thought what was interesting to that point was, and I don't know how this will go down uh, with, with with the activists, but was his credit to his predecessors, George Osborne, Philip Hammond, and briefly Sajid Javid. Uh, and you know, he, he basically said he then said it's only because of ten years of sound conservative management of our economy that this government has been able to act at the pace and scale that we have. I, it's because it's a, it's because George Osborne and Philip Hammond in particular fixed the roof while the sun was shining, 
that we're now able to do what we do. And it's a clear bridge towards the need to kind of uh, uh, do the same thing again after, um, after, after we're out of the woods on this. Especially if you compare it to the fact that... So, so what I found quite interesting over the last year or so has been the way in which... Well, actually, Tories themselves often like refer to the Boris Johnson government as as being, you know, a new, almost like a new party, a new government that that bears little to no relation to the party that's basically been governing the country for the last ten years. Um, so it's interesting that he's trying to sort of establish more of a continuity between the present government and its predecessors than perhaps you would get from Boris Johnson or, or various other members of the government. Yeah, I mean that's a really that's a really good point, and actually the kind of the fact that then later on he lists out what I mean, I think you know I'm a lifelong conservative, or at least I was until current circumstances. Um, uh, that he then lists out that what what a what a what a, what a traditional conservative would see as would see as conservative values. Uh, so you know it's um, where is it kind of pragmatism, uh, concern for institutions, etc. I mean all things that if you're all things that for an activist are touchstone issues. But but actually if you look back at the kind of the record of this government over the last year or so and the kind of culture wars uh, in particular, you might you might and the kind of throwing money around, not all of which was 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 due to COVID, you might not recognise. So, so in a way, was was this kind of the speech to sort of win back people like yourself? So, so people who, who you know, traditional conservatives who um, may have been a bit sort of alienated by all the sort of you know the Brexit culture wars and and the the fights that the government had been picking over the last year. We say it is, this has almost been kind of designed to sort of win back people like that. And maybe, yeah. I mean, I, it's certainly a speech that I can associate with because we are we're, we're unquestionably in an exceptional emergency. So. You know, I'm I'm instinctively a fiscal conservative, but actually, uh, you, pretty much everyone can understand the kind of exceptional measures the government has to take now. It's just that you want you want some assurance that at the end of the day we'll be we'll be back to business as normal and back to a kind of competent stewardship of the ship of state. And so that that does feel like this was this was the kind of this was an effort to reassure people on, on to that end. And yeah, maybe kind of a few years back, it feels a bit more like the kind of the kind of speech. You know, absent COVID, the kind of speech you might have you might have seen seen then. Because one one of the other things that it, it also struck me was that so which is you has been chancellor since when is it February I think. Um, so so for the better, better part of a year, and he's been obviously due to the the circumstances of coronavirus, he's been extremely prominent. Um, but this is this is almost the first time we've seen anything that he's done which hasn't been completely reactive to the circumstances. So all all of his big kind of the, the, the things that made his name uh, were, you know, the, the press conferences and, and um, you know, the the initial sort of fiscal response to the crisis, which were all kind of here are the emergency measures we're taking, um, and here is how we're, you know, protecting protecting the country, trying to protect the economy from from the impact of the virus. And this is the closest that I think I've seen him give to anything which suggests, um, you know, any sort of like wider forward vision. Um, anything which suggests that, like, oh, this, by the way, is what we're sort of more in 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 politics for. And as you say, it was it was a more kind of traditional, you know, conservative chancellor type speech. So I think maybe one of the things that people have not forgotten, but just because it hasn't been that prominent, um, really sort of paid that much attention to is the fact that yeah, Rishi Sunak is a is a conservative chancellor, he's a conservative politician, um, and the the reasons that he got into politics are you know generally those which um, conservative politicians tend to get into politics for. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I think there's a lot in that, and I think kind of if you're an activist looking at this, I've just found the kind of text I was earlier. Uh, you know, 
we believe in personal responsibility and pragmatism. We believe in the nobility of work and free enterprise. We believe in the unbreakable bond of union that unites the four nations of our United Kingdom. You know, this is uh, this is meat, meat and drink to a kind of traditional conservative activist. And um, you know, I, I'm not sure we've heard so much of this uh, over the past over, over the past year or so. And yeah, I mean, maybe it's it, it's about showing continuity. It's about showing that he's a kind of serious and traditional conservative politician. And with that come traditional conservative values, which are competence uh, and, fit, and, and I suppose, and, and, and uh, a concern about kind of ensuring that you balance, you balance the books. And that was kind of front and centre. That last message was front and centre. Is there is there also just in 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 terms of him thanking his predecessors? Is the so so the specific three that he mentioned there? So George Osborne, Philip Hammond, and Sajid Javid. Mm. You're you're a better judge of this than me, but in my in my view, those the, they are all from the same sort of strand of of the Tory Party. So they're, they're all very much the the you know the the fiscally sound um, you know tight spending um, that sort of wing of things. Yeah, yeah they're all rather than because the the overall sort of Tory bargain that I associate with Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings is culture war plus more NHS spending. Yeah, and. It's a quick control F of, of the speech, and then maybe it's in there somewhere else. But I couldn't really find much mention, apart from these sort of emergency measures, of NHS or hospitals or health or anything like that. No, and I think, I mean, it's easy to forget that kind of uh, before he became Chancellor, Rishi Sunak was talked of as a, as, as a proper kind of fiscal hawk. I mean, he was Thatcherite in his approach to the public finances. And so that credit to Osborne, who who is certainly kind of Thatcherite in his approach to a Philip Hammond, you know, dryers dry as a bone, um, Sajid to an extent as well. I mean, I think I think fundamentally he is, but he's a bit more populist in his approach. Um, you know, it, it is very much putting him in that in in that in that kind of uh, tradition. I think. Whereas, yeah, I, mean, I think you're right. I mean, kind of, um, and and also, I mean, the other the other thing to that point that's quite interesting is 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 the reference to trade offs in the. Uh, um, in, in this speech, the government is nipping blind to the difficult trade-offs and decisions coronavirus has forced upon us. Uh, and famously, Boris Johnson is someone who doesn't really recognise trade-offs. Yeah, it was, it was kind of almost sort of retro in that sense, wasn't it? In that it's acknowledging that you can't, yeah, it's, it's cakeism, isn't it? Yeah. So that you can't just have both of the good things and none of the bad things, that you do have to choose between them. So, yeah, almost kind of a throwback to, um, yeah, sort of the first half of the last decade. Um, which reminds me that there was, um, there's a, a big load of Lord Ashcroft polling out um, where he's done one of his sort of 8,000 samples or so. And, and um, one of the one of the various measures where they, they compare the different part of the, the two main parties on. And the one issue where the Conservatives were clearly ahead of Labour. So Labour, Labour at the moment and also historically tend to lead on things like in touch with ordinary people, um, you know, hearts in the right place, even if the, the head's not, that sort of thing. Um, the toys normally lead on um, being willing to take tough decisions. And that's the one clear area in this most recent Ashcroft poll where they still lead and, and they are clearly ahead of Labour and or Labour isn't ahead. And there's a, there's a piece in the, in the Telegraph that said to the extent that the public is prepared for tax rises. They expect them to be borne essentially by the by, by the better off. And uh, I think, I mean, the thing is, I, I don't think people have really understood the extent to which we're in a we're in a real financial hole here. 
and uh, the level of tax rises that are required simply cannot be borne by by, by the wealthiest or by business. It feels like uh, Rishi is probably uh, probably understands that and is and is trying to soften up public opinion. But I but I wonder at what point he actually kind of breaks cover uh, and breaks cover and kind of does something more more overt on that. How how the how the how that will be received again just to thinking about um his comparison with about 10 years ago um so there's there's an ongoing sort of theory and i think it's, it's called something like the thermostatic theory of public opinion which is basically that um take um you know tax rises versus spending cuts for example or um you know public spending too high too low um basically public public opinion sort of reacts in uh, sort of in the opposite direction to what the government is doing um, at the time, so let's say you have, um, you know, a Labour government comes in and starts spending more. Um, the percentage saying that public spending should be higher will gradually go down, either as you know, sort of that need is satisfied, or in yeah, in response to criticism of that. And then a similar thing happens if a Tory government comes in and starts, you know, cutting spending and cutting taxes. Is that the percentage saying that public spending should go up gradually rises, and that's what we saw over the last sort of decade or so. Um, in that the first, especially during the coalition years. There was a lot of kind of public opinion um, consensus that the way to deal with the deficit was through spending cuts. Yeah. Because again, we'd had sort of 13 years of a Labour government spending a lot of money. Um, the situation at the moment, when we've had yeah, 10 years of conservative or conservative-led governments, um, is that yeah, spending spending cuts are not really seen as the answer in the way that they were back in the 2010s. So, to the extent that we have any evidence on this, um, Number Cruncher did some uh, some work on this. Um, basically asking whether or not we should prioritise tax rises or spending cuts. And I think the number they had was 59% said higher taxes versus 16% saying lower spending. So obviously the actual composition of that is, you know, debatable. It's, it's, it's more kind of indicative than anything else. Um, you know, it could be that people are seeing that and thinking, okay, well, higher taxes, that affects rich people, not me. Um, but it does suggest that basically there is... By comparison with equivalent figures from about 2010, when spending cuts were preferred by about 50% to 35% uh, for tax rises, it does suggest there is less sort of sympathy for the more austerity, more public spending cuts argument than there was then. I mean, that's a really interesting comparison, because if you think about 10 years, so you had, yes, 13 years of Labour government, you then had the financial crisis in uh, 2007 onwards. Um, and uh, sometime after that point, Osborne essentially weaponized the kind of we're all in this together, you need to fix the roof while the sun is shining. And so kind of, yeah, his first budget, his first spending review enjoyed a hell of a lot of, was built on the back of a hell of a lot of public support for tax cuts, uh, sorry, uh, spending cuts and tax rises. Um, and I, but, but I mean, there was clearly, as you say, a recognition that the public finances were in a hole. I mean, does that suggest that, that people haven't really, the extent of the problem we are facing now hasn't really sunk in. And actually, if, if Rishi is to socialise the responsibility for kind of getting us out of it, he actually needs to kind of build the real, build that realisation a bit. Yeah, I, I think, and, and also the, the thing with that, with a question like that is that it's a binary. So we are, you know, people will ask, would you prefer, um, would you prefer the focus be on increasing taxes or the focus be on cutting, you know, spending and cutting services? So there's an extent to which that's, you know, in, in reality, both of those are going to be needed. Um, so I, I don't know whether we have anything which suggests um, or w which asks people whether or not they believe that the current, uh, you know, deficit or public um, 
deficit in the public finances is, is you know is it worse than in in 2010 is it is it less serious what what the kind of public consensus is on that um the only thing we have is that um yeah when we ask them which would they prefer to prioritize there is more appetite for increasing taxes than there is for spending cuts and i think and again that's partly in recognition that i wonder this is, this is sort of an open question but i wonder if you ask people whether um especially sort of you know during the sort of george osborne period as chancellor whether the conservatives raise taxes and cut spending or whether they only cut spending or only raise taxes i wonder what the the sort of public perception would actually be of that because obviously we, we know in reality it was both um but i feel that the cuts to public services and public spending have cut through much more ironically yeah yeah i think so um i mean the, i think the other comparison which i often i often think about is you know from what mid 2007 when the when the financial crisis kicked off it was actually only until it was actually only 2010 where the government started start started balancing the books so two and a half years later and i mean it's clear that if labor had been re-elected they would have done the same thing so give or take we're looking at a two and a half year lag and that's a decent amount of time within which to get to educate the public about the extent to which the, this kind of treatment is required and we, we probably just aren't there yet uh, and maybe, I mean, the, I, th- I think the point I'm trying to, the, the, the point it would be useful to think about is to the extent that Rishi's brand is built on, uh, yes, kind of an image of competence, an image of hard work, but also, let's be crude, on the fact that he's given a load of stuff away. <laughs> if that brand is to survive intact, what does he need to do to actually soften up public opinion? And maybe he just needs to leave it a bit and 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 keep and keep hammering the message about uh, about about the need to fix the roof. So moving on just from Rishi Sunak, although it is although his position in this is striking, uh, um, kind of I wanted to talk also about uh, the uh, conservative home latest conservative home poll of net satisfaction ratings for members of the cabinet, which came out on Friday. Uh, and they do this on a kind of fairly regular basis, polling their readers on you know, whether they are more or less satisfied with uh, individual members of the cabinet. Um, obviously, con home readers are activists. They're people who, and they tend to be at the more Brexity end of the, of the spectrum. They're people who are, um, who are uh, you know, follow politics, are interested in Tory politics in particular. And so recognition scores among the cabinet are far likely to be higher with this audience than 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 just the public at large. But with that in mind, I thought the results were were quite interesting. I mean, just uh, kind of uh, your takeaways uh, on this, Adam. Yeah, so um, so Conhome do this about once a month or so, and they say it's a, a survey of party members, but it's, it's difficult to find anything on the actual methodology of it. So in other words, it's not 100% clear whether it is just readers of Conservative Home who get maybe their newsletter and then there is a question at the start that says, are you a member of the Conservative Party? Yes, no. And then they're counting people who say yes, or whether there's any kind of validation there, or indeed whether um, whether they're paid up members or um, whether there's anything done to kind of reflect what the actual sort of balance of, of Tory members is. As you said, um, it, it's possible they kind of err towards the more sort of Brexit end of things. But with all that in mind, um, something that I think they they actually have a fairly reasonable record on is when they do this in advance of a Tory leadership election. And I think they've um, been reasonably good at, at um, estimating the final sort of vote share among party members for uh, the leadership candidates. So, um, yeah, there's, there's, there's reasons to and to not um, read too much into this. But again, with all that in mind, um, so net satisfaction rating, uh, which they do for all of the members of the cabinet. Um, and as you said, 
people who are answering this are probably more likely to have heard of most of these, but still, um, you know, some of, some of the figures with more kind of net neutral scores, like let's say Simon Hart, Alistair Jack, Amanda Milling, um, the, these figures more, I feel, suggest that people don't know that much about them. Yeah, and there are quite a lot of people, interestingly, in that bracket. I mean, Amanda Milling is kind of, you know, pretty much nearly neutral, but you know, you've got a whole load of people in the 30s. Mm, you have your big gap from sort of Oliver Dowden at plus 39, and then there's about 10 or so, or, or you know, 7 or 8, uh, down to Ben Wallace at plus 30, who have scores of, yeah, between plus 30 and plus 39. Um, the ones who, who are more sort of standing out, so you have Rishi Sunak at the top um, at net plus 81 so presumably what they've done here is they've taken the percentage you say satisfied uh subtracted the percentage you say dissatisfied and that's how you get your net score so Rishi Sunak on plus 81.5 Liz Truss on plus 69.7 um personally as, as somebody who works in in statistics I wouldn't put decimal points on that I feel it gives um it gives um to it gives an impression of accuracy which I don't believe um uh, surveys can give um, but anyway um dominic rob on plus 59.7 uh, michael gove on plus 56.4 um so rishi sunak leading the pack there the ones who are in negative territory um are gavin williamson the most negative here of all uh so a net score of minus 43.1 um and then boris johnson just above him in just sort of negative territory uh at minus 10.3 along with uh, robert jemrick on minus 10 this is a this is a survey of certainly activists, pro, uh, significantly party members. Um, you know, Boris Johnson until recently was the darling of the party membership, and you know was elected essentially over the heads of the uh, par- of the parliamentary party, most of whom kind of would be suspected it probably wasn't up to the job, in large part due to pressure from the from from the country from the party in the country. And so, for for him to be now almost at the bottom of the pack is absolutely staggering, I would say. So, so one of, one of the things that Anthony Conholm point out, um, but but which is still valid, is that um, it's not it's not unheard of for a Conservative Prime Minister to be in negative territory here. Um, but the example that they point to uh, is not that encouraging. It's Theresa May uh, back in sort of the week after Brexit was delayed, um, when her score was minus fifty one point two. Yeah. So, you know, after after basically failing to deliver the thing which Conhome activists in large part were all really keen on. Um, so it, it is it is not that unusual. And actually, if, again, just comparing, you know, March 2019 to possibly sort of the low ebb of um, the, the current government's predecessors might not be the best um, comparison. But if you look at sort of the net... Um, where the bulk of the cabinet sits, as we said, there's about sort of 10 who are, who are on sort of plus 30 to plus 40. Out of all the people that they, they measure in this, um, there are only four figures who are in negative territory. So Gavin Williamson, Boris Johnson, uh, Robert Jenrick, and Matt Hancock is just on minus three. I mean, I'd, I'd argue that's basically a neutral score. Um, and then in comparison, the, the, the March 2019 uh, figures for the cabinet um, a slim majority of them are in negative territory. The only positive, the only really positive ones are Andrea Leadsom and uh, again Liz Truss, who who seems to be um, yeah quite high up there, um, regardless of which cabinet she's in. Anyone who sees Liz Truss's performance at conference will know why she's there. I mean, she basically has a long, a long history of essentially telling 
the uh, telling the activists what they want to hear. Yeah, so so you could argue if there was any measure which which she should be successful on, it is this one. Yeah, and I mean her her exercise yesterday, uh, she did a kind of um, a double header um, b- before in the kind of economy section of the uh, um, uh, of the conference, where she basically kind of went on about how the UK, the, the people around the world, were desperate to buy UK goods. It's the kind of thing that if you're if you're a Brexit believer and you've you've actually logged in to watch an online online Tory conference, for goodness sake, you're going to be desperate to hear. So yeah, I mean, I, I, that's not a surprise. I, I was going to say. So what, what's interesting is that, um, as far as Rishi Sunak goes, at least that that high placing there does a it, it does tally with um, the wider public, and arguably, you know, so does Boris Johnson's. Um, with the rest, um, yeah, m- most people have not heard of most cabinet ministers, and certainly not any shadow cabinet ministers. Um, so the rest, we can we can. It's hard to make any kind of comparison there. Some of these are clearly going to be a feature of recognition, aren't they? So uh, Rishi, Liz, even the Prime Minister Boris Johnson, they, they are they are where they are because people have heard of them. So to that end, if you discount those, the ones that are really striking are Gavin Williamson on minus 43. Robert Jenrick, actually, who otherwise you would put in the middle of the kind of 30s with people like Alok Shala, Suella Braverman, Grant Chaps, who frankly, you've got to be really properly in the village to have heard of these people. And yet Robert Jenrick is kind of right at the bottom alongside the Prime Minister in terms of his lack of popularity. As you say, it's interesting the, the cut through that happens. So Robert Jenrick, obviously, is, I, I would be, I'd be surprised if most members of the public have heard of him, but I wouldn't be surprised that a decent number have, because obviously there's the whole kind of Richard Desmond scandal that's, that was on um, you know, front pages for for quite a little while. <clears throat> um, and funnily enough, I, I live five minutes walk away from the development that that scandal is all about. Um, but um, yeah, it, it wouldn't surprise me that he's in there. But as I said, with with the rest, so yeah, your Alex Sharma's, your Suella Braverman, um, etc. It wouldn't surprise me that there was a, a generic kind of um, sort of sort of um, benefit of the doubt type score that that um, respondents to this particular survey are giving in that okay I'm a conservative supporter they are in a conservative cabinet I haven't heard of them but they're probably doing all right um, so so you know you either give them a neutral or a slightly net positive score what does that say about Priti Patel then who's right in the middle of these 30s 33.7 percent it's interesting yeah it's interesting that Priti Patel basically has the a score that is between Therese Coffey and Robert Buckland. Who, who the hell are they? But, uh... Exactly. So, I mean, I, I, I would not be surprised if. So, so it's interesting that she's not more popular here. Um, it that that suggests to me that again, without having actual data to look at and without being able to see the table, saying, um, you know, what the plus and minuses are on this. So, because you know, it's possible that Robert Buckland's figures, for example, uh, and apologies, if my mental math doesn't quite work here, but it's possible that his figures are, say, you know plus 40 and minus seven, say. Whereas maybe um, uh, uh, Pretty Patel's figures are, you know, plus 60 and minus 30. So it's possible that, uh, it wouldn't surprise me if Pretty Patel is actually she is quite divisive, more maybe. polarizing, yeah, than um, some of the figures who surround her, which which therefore nets out to an equivalent figure. But, it, yeah, she, she may have, you know, more hardened detractors. It's a shame we don't, we don't have the raw numbers, really. Mm. Um, but yeah, as I said, it's... Um, it's interesting that, yeah, as far as the really high-profile ones go, the broad sort of positioning of them, so Rishi Sunak uh, and Boris Johnson and Gavin Williamson, they all kind of track with what the wider public thinks. Like, like you know, it's not the case that the wider public doesn't like politician X, but um, conservative activists really love them um, compared to others. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, I think that's uh, I think that's probably unfortunately all, all, all we have time for today. Thank you for listening. We'll be running a whole series of these podcasts through the coming months alongside our weekly Political Capital newsletter, which contains further insights and analysis from Lansons and Opinion. If you would like to subscribe to the newsletter or to receive updates about the podcast, please go to the public affairs page of the Lansons website at www.lansons.com and click subscribe to Political Capital. To see Opinion's political polling data, go to opinion.com to see their historic data or to see their new releases, which are published every fortnight.